0: Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. In this episode, we are discussing chapter number three, Never Enough, When Rich People Do Crazy Things. In the previous episode, we uh, went through the story of Bill Gates and how success is a lousy teacher which seduces smart people into thinking that they can't lose in the chapter titled Luck and Risk. In this chapter, Hausel introduces uh, an important lesson of why having enough or having a number that is enough is important to John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, passed away in 2019, but told a story that he suggests we don't often think about. And I'll read it in foot. A party given by a billionaire on Shelter Island, Kurt Von Gott informs his pal Joseph Heller, the founder of or the, sorry the writer of Catch Twenty Two, that that the person who's hosting them today has made more money in a single day than Heller had earned from his novel Catch Twenty Two. Heller responds saying, "Yes, but I have something he will never have enough. Enough." Bogle writes. I was stunned by the simple eloquence of that word, stunned for two reasons, first, because I have never been given so much in my own life, because I have been given so much in my own life, and second, because Joseph Heller couldn't have been more accurate. The critical element of our society, including many of the wealthiest and most powerful among us, seems, there seems to be no limit on what enough entails. And this is the importance of this chapter brought about through three stories. One is the story of Rajat Gupta, um, a billionaire hedge fund investor who, who, who came from a quintessential rags to riches story. The second is Bernie Madoff, the uh, Ponzi scheme, a uh, person who's known for the Ponzi scheme and uh, passed away quite recently in prison. And third is the... Wealth managers at an investment firm called Long-Term Capital Management. So let's quickly go through these um, stories and, and, and then Housel writes four key takeaways at the end of the chapter. So Gupta, he says, was born in Kolkata in India and orphaned as a teenager. People talk about the privileged few who begin on third base, which is a baseball analogy. Gupta couldn't even see the baseball stadium, which again, in this case, should be the cricket stadium, right? So basic uh, thing he's saying is that some people are born at an advantage, some people are born at a disadvantage. Razad Gupta was born at a severe disadvantage. But by his mid-40s, he was the CEO of McKinsey. And by 2008, he was reportedly worth over $100 million, which roughly comes about to over 700 crores. And what he wanted though, by all accounts, wasn't to be a mere centa millionaire or a millionaire in the hundreds. Rajad Gupta wanted to be a billionaire and he wanted it Gupta sat on the board of the investment bank, Goldman Sachs, which, was surround, which surrounded him by some of the wealthiest investors in the world. In 2008, as Goldman Sachs stared at the wrath of the financial crisis, Warren Buffett planned to invest $5 billion, which is again about 35,000 crores, um, into the bank to help it survive. As a Goldman board member, Gupta learned of this transaction before it went public. It was valuable information. Goldman's survival was in doubt in Buffett, and backing would surely send the stock. 16 seconds after learning of the pending deal, he dialed his hedge fund manager Raj Rajat Raman. The call wasn't recorded, but, Raj, uh, but Rajat Raman immediately bought 1.75 lakh shares of Goldman Sachs. And the next day, when the announcement was made, Rajat Raman made a quick one million. And of course, he had to split this with Rajat Gupta. So, the he would make, make uh, relative to his net worth wasn't really enough, but. According to an investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is like the United States uh, SEBI, uh, the market regulator, Gupta had made over $17 million from insider trips. It was easy money, and for prosecutors, it was an easier case. He was thrown in jail, and his reputation was immediately ruined. Before we go on to the lessons, Housel explains the story of Bernie Madoff, who was probably is known most for his infamous Ponzi scheme. Uh, and, And the simple definition of a Ponzi scheme is you take money from people at the top and give it to people at the bottom, meaning you take money from one set of people without increasing its value through investment and simply give it to another set of people. The first set of people are the people who have invested later, who you take the money from. And the second set of people are the people who have invested early, who you give the money to. And you keep doing this and feeding your own pockets until you get a certain amount of money. And then you make away with it. And he did this for 17 years, Ernie Madoff. But Housel says, what's overlooked is that Madoff was more than a fraudster. Before the Ponzi scheme that made Madoff famous, he was a wildly successful, and legitimate businessman. He was a market maker, meaning someone who helps exchanges, facilitates trades by conducting sort of these dummy trades in order to decrease the buying price and the selling price. And he had a wildly successful market making firm. In fact, several established um, newspapers in the US have written positive articles about Madoff and his firm as early as 1992. These are not journalists who were incorrect and incorrectly assessing a fraud. Madoff's market-making business was legitimate. The question we should ask, therefore, Hazul says, of both Gupta and Madoff is why someone who is A, in Gupta's case, a rags-to-riches story, someone who had nothing to compare and who had $100 million of net worth, and in Madoff's case, someone who had a legitimate thriving business, which he built on honest terms, why would these people turn to to incredibly sort of devious and fraudulent behavior? Why are they desperate for money so much so that they risk everything in pursuit of even more? Time committed by those living on the edge of survival household rights is one thing. A Nigerian scam artist once told the New York Times that he felt guilty for hurting others, but poverty will make you feel the pain. But Gupta and Maraf did something different. They already had everything: wealth, prestige, power freedom, and they threw it all away because they did more. They had no sense of enough and this is another st- this is the same tale that runs through the story of long-term capital management another Incredible wealth management firm, hedge fund, that that was destroyed in the nineteen, in the late nineteen nineties, um, because of the financial crisis that mainly struck Russia. Uh, this was an algorithmic quantitative trading firm that bought several securities from all over the world. But when Russia entered a financial crisis in in nineteen ninety eight management firm was uh, completely destroyed and the government, the US government had to bail it out. and mm-hmm. writes, they took so much risk in the quest for more that they managed to lose everything in the middle of the greatest bull market, the tech boom, and strongest economy mm-hmm. in history. Warren Buffett later put it addressing the situation. To make money, they didn't have to make money they didn't have and didn't need. They risked what they did have and did need. And that's foolish. It's just plain foolish. A few of us will ever have over $100 million. But a measurable percentage of those both reading the book and out in this world will. And that can be either through a business, through a salary, through whatever means. If you're one of them, he says, remember a few things. Point number one, the hardest financial skill is, to, is getting the goalpost to stop moving. If, expectation, if expectations arise with results, there is no logic in striving for more because you will feel the same after putting in extra effort. Modern capitalism is a pro at two things, generating wealth and generating envy. Perhaps they go hand in hand, wanting to surpass your peers can be fuel of hard work, but life isn't any fun without a sense of enough. Point number two, social comparison is the problem. here. Everyone is rich relative to another person. He gives the example of baseball players and hedge fund managers, and we can take the example of people in the IPL as, as an Indian example. person who's just sign for a franchise is going to earn a couple of crores a year which is incredible compared to the average 20 to 30 year old indian uh, who's earning significantly less whereas someone at the top of uh indian cricket someone like a virat Kohli, a rohit sharma or a jaspreet pumbra they're earning significantly more or 30 40 crores a year so who are you going to compare yourself to you're not certainly comparing yourself to the IPL uh, player, you're probably comparing yourself to a friend, a successful or an unsuccessful friend, depending on if you want to make yourself feel better or worse. The point is the ceiling of social comparison is so high that virtually no one can ever hit it, which means it's a battle that can never be won or the only way to win is not to fight to begin with. Point number three, enough is not too little. The idea of having enough might look like conservatism, having opportunity and potential, leaving leaving opportunity and potential on the table. Enough is realizing that the opposite would push you to the point of regret. For some reason, the logic does not translate to business and investing where if you eat too much, you will feel like vomiting. If you earn too much, it's not necessary that you'll feel repulsed in any way, but it will drive you doing things unimaginable, like Rajat Gupta and Bernie of. Whatever it is, the inability to deny a potential dollar or a potential rupee will eventually catch up to you. And the final point, there are many things never worth risking, no matter the potential gain. When Rajat Gupta was released, he said, don't get too attached to anything, your reputation, accomplishments. I think about it now. What does it matter? This thing unjustly destroyed my reputation. That's only troubling if I'm attached to my reputation. Housel admits that this is possibly one of the worst takeaways that you can have from this experience. But what you should remember is reputation is invaluable. Freedom and independence are invaluable. Family and friends are invaluable. Being loved by those who you want to love is invaluable. Happiness is invaluable. And your best shot at keeping these things is knowing when it's time to stop taking risks that might harm them, knowing that you have enough. So, listeners, just ask yourself: if it's monetary goal, if it's a career goal, an education goal, ask yourself, what is enough? Have I reached it? And if I reach it, will I realize? And that's it from this episode of the Psychology of Money. If there's any way I can improve make this podcast a better experience for you Mm -hmm. and for myself, please do let me know. Let me know. If you want to purchase this book, you can check out the link. It's in the description. That's it from this episode. I will see you next time.